Primary control of critical vehicle function. Welcome to Future Thinking episode 89. The title of this episode is The Myth of Left and Right. And I can promise you that this will be a very intriguing conversation. The thing is, for many years now, I've been getting more and more uneasy when pundits and journalists use the left-right dichotomy. In my lifetime, I observed numerous political topics that were once at the core of the left uh, political ideology, or in the left political tribe, if you will, then suddenly are named right or right-wing and vice versa. I then came across the book with the very name The Myth of Left and Right, and it's a terrific read. So I was very excited that one of the authors, Hiram Lewis, agreed to conversation. Hiram Lewis is a professor of history at BYU, Idaho, and was previously a visiting scholar at Stanford University. He received a PhD from University of Southern California and has written for the Wall Street Journal, Killette, Real Clear Politics, The Washington Examiner, and other national publications. His most recent book, the one I mentioned before, The Myth of Left and Right, was co-authored with Verlon Lewis, his brother, and was published by Oxford University Press in 2023. So one more word about this episode. This episode fits very nicely with the previous episode I recorded and published with Professor Möllers on liberalism. So if you're a German speaker, please check out this one with Professor Möllers as well. On this note, uh, this podcast is mostly German content, but I mean we'll have a number of very, very interesting English episodes. So on the podcast website, you can use the tags feature to select only English episodes and then you can choose the ones that you like. Moreover, this podcast is free of ads. If you like what you're hearing, please support me and this project by recommending this podcast or this episode to friends, family, colleagues and whoever you know and share it on social media and put five stars on your favorite podcast platform, if you will. So without further ado, the brilliant conversation with Hiram Lewis. Hiram Lewis, so thank you very much for joining my podcast. It's my pleasure, Alexander. Thanks for having me. Maybe let me just give you one or two words of introduction why I'm so curious to talk with you like over the last i don't know one or two years i regularly talked with friends and colleagues about sort of i'm not a political scientist or anything but about like an observation i made like and i often said to my friends it's weird i have the impression like topics that are now topics of let's say the left or progressive were sort of topics of the conservatives 20 30 years ago and vice versa and i sort of had the idea like What's going on is every 30 years are the positions changing <laughs> or some such stuff. And then I then I sort of stumbled over the book that you wrote with your brother, I think, right? And also other media appearances of you and I found this extraordinarily fascinating because your book is like the myth of the left and right. And I don't know, maybe you could tell me, is my observation wrong? Or I mean, as you say, the myth of the left or right, maybe you could give me some idea about what was your motivation for the book or what was your... How did you get to that to that topic? Yeah, so uh, pretty much the same way you did. <laughs> Strangely enough, you know, I always say I the books I write they're books that I would want to read that I kept waiting for somebody else to write that they never did, and so I said, well, I'm just going to have to do it myself. So we feel like we're just basically saying the emperor has no clothes because this seems like a rather obvious observation, right? Our thesis is simply this: 
that there's more than one issue in politics. And since a political spectrum can only model one issue, well, then using a political spectrum is going to be misleading. So how did I come to recognize that? Well, it didn't take a lot of intellect to recognize there's more than one issue in politics. But like you, I started noticing that these people who are convinced that there's just one big issue, there's the people who want the change and the people who don't want change, the one big issue of change, people convinced of that would present a historical narrative in which the people they called left believed the exact opposite of what was called right later. So Arthur Schlesinger Jr., you may have heard of him. He's a very famous American historian. But, you know, he was saying, for instance, that Andrew Jackson and Thomas Jefferson were on the far left. They were they were liberals. And he, Arthur Schlesinger, was a liberal. But what Arthur Schlesinger wanted out of the government was literally the exact opposite of what Andrew Jackson and Thomas Jefferson wanted out of the government. They wanted to shrink the size of government, right? This bank war where Andrew Jackson dismantled major federal programs, um, Thomas Jefferson cutting spending, cutting the debt, cutting taxes. Uh, these were the opposite of the policies that Schlesinger himself wanted, and yet he was insisting that somehow they were on the left because they shared some essential core characteristic with Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, and all the rest of his heroes of the 20th century. So that just didn't make any sense to me. And I, and as I, you know, studied history more, as I got a PhD in history, and I looked and saw in the U.S. history how that wasn't just a one-off, that there were constant flip-floppings. It wasn't just on size of government. It's on literally everything. So when I was in graduate school, of course, the Iraq war was happening. And people said, well, the Iraq war, militarism, that's obviously right-wing. Right-wingers are militarists. Therefore, George W. Bush is a right-wing extremist. And yet at the time of Franklin Roosevelt, it was considered left-wing to believe in going to war. And the people who made the exact same arguments that left-wingers in 2003 were making, they were considered right-wingers in the 19, you know, the early 1940s and late 1930s. Free speech is another example, right? Free speech is an essential left-wing principle. Left-wingers believe in free speech. That's, that's a core principle. And of course, now you hear people on the left saying that free speech is a tool of white supremacy and that free speech is wicked and with some ideas have to be silenced and these kinds of things. So like you, I just noticed that there was no consistency in what was call it, being called left and right, which led me to the conclusion, what seems pretty obvious in retrospect, that there is no left and right. There's just two tribes. And what those two tribes believe and stand for will change quite radically over time, since there's no philosophical core uniting the tribes. That's really interesting. I, I would like to, maybe you, we can come up to some more examples later, but I would like to talk a little bit about, let's say, semantics, about terminology, because like left right is often associated left with progressivism and right maybe with conservatism or even reactionary uh, ideas maybe in the extreme and maybe let me just drop my thoughts about these terms and then you tell me if you see them like i see if you see some some other things here i personally have a deep problem number one with the term progressive because progressive for me is i feel it's like a condescending term because if i'm saying I'm progressive, then I'm implying, let's say you are not progressive because, uh, because progressive means like I'm going forward, right? And if I'm not, if I, and if you're not of my opinion, then clearly you're going backward or you at least you're not going forward. So for me, I, I personally don't like the term progressive at all for that very reason. But my problem is I don't have a better one. So maybe, maybe you can help me out here. Uh, maybe, maybe we start with this term. How do you, how do you, how do you see the term progressive? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It, It is a loaded and self-serving term. And so it's very clever. In fact, I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal about this saying, look, the Republicans are stupid. They're, they're saying, you know, they're, they're acceding to the framing, first of all, which is a mistake, saying there's a left and a right. The left believes in change. The right doesn't believe in change. They're acceding to that framing. And then they're saying that, yes, we are on the anti-change side. We don't want progress. We want to slow things down. But you look historically, right, over time, 
more social justice, less racism, more technology, more economic growth, you're really going to try to sell the public on your policies by saying we, we stand against the future. We stand against progress. We don't want economic growth. We don't want advances in medicine. We don't want more technology. I mean, that is a suicidal thing to do. So if you're a Republican, I would start pushing heavily against this narrative of left-wing progress, right-wing stopping progress. I mean, you, you're just you just conceded defeat to to your opponents. So yeah, so the progressives have taken the people who call themselves progressives have taken the rhetorical high ground here because they have said, if you don't agree with every policy we believe in, you don't believe in higher taxes, you don't believe in environmental this and that, you don't believe in certain COVID policies, you don't believe in abortion rights for women, you don't believe in all this set of things, well, then you're obviously on the wrong side of history. You're standing against progress and these kinds of things. I mean, it's hard to win an argument when it's framed that way. And so the progressives, to their credit, have been very smart to do that. But like you, I don't think that's fair because I don't believe that it's true that everything that currently flies under the banner of progressive actually floats progress. It's a mixed bag. Some things do, some things don't. The reality, as I see it, is that there is a party in our country called the Democratic Party, and it stands for a bundle of policies. It's like a grocery basket. If you showed up at the grocery store and they had a basket of random products, some of them would be good, some of them would be bad, some of them you would like, some of them you wouldn't like. And you might have to buy that basket because it's better than the alternative basket, but let's not delude ourselves that everything in that basket is good. And yet the myth of left and right lets people believe that delusion. It says everything the Democratic Party supports is progressive, advances progress. It's part of this underlying philosophy, and therefore it's all good. And if you disagree with even one of our policies, that means you're on the wrong side of history, that you're right wing, you're reactionary, and all these kinds of things. So I completely agree with you. It's a loaded term. Now, what's a better term? Well, since we are pointing out that that it's not a philosophy, it's a tribe, we don't know why you can't just use the label of the party. See, see, since we have a party, mm-hmm. a Democratic Party, and it stands for things, then say Democrat. That works, mm-hmm. right? I'm a Democrat. I stand for the things the Democratic Party stands for. The problem with the label progressive is it feeds the illusion that everything this party stands for is philosophically coherent and bound by a philosophy. Mm-hmm. And that's the big lie that we're pushing against. And it's the big lie that's doing so much damage in American politics. I don't know how it's working out in Austrian politics. I'm afraid I don't follow it nearly as closely, but it's certainly doing a lot of destruction on this side of the Atlantic. No, I think, I mean, the general trends, I would say, are pretty similar in Europe and the U.S. I mean, of course, there are differences in party lines and so on, but I think the general attitudes, I, I would say, are pretty much the same. Maybe to get to the second term, because incidentally, I think the term progressive is actually much easier to define for me. Because, for instance, if you go back to Roger Scruton or also others like I, I read one very nice yeah, just yesterday a definition of of conservatism saying conservatism is democracy of the deceased in the okay. idea like also like and, and if you could do the definition of Roger Scruton which goes in, in the line good things are easily destroyed but not easily created this is sort of actually like a physical argument like second law of thermodynamics if you think of it right you have so many more ways you can screw up and so few ways of actually doing something right. And the conservative idea in that sense is, well, let's be careful because before we tear something down, if we know we have something better, right? But then again, of course, you come into the problem, okay, but what do you conserve, right? And then you come into it. So how do you see this term? Is this term also clearer for you or do you have a similar issue on that that side? Yeah. (laughs) So here's the problem. 
you're saying, you know, Roger Scruton says conserving, conserving, we have to conserve things. And I don't doubt that. And I think Roger Scruton, as far as I can tell, was a consistent philosopher. And, and that's all fine and dandy. The problem is pretending that everything we call in America conservative, all the policies of the Republican Party basically do exactly that, conserve things, when in fact they don't. Uh, people who call themselves conservatives, for instance, do not want to conserve the environment. Now, by Scruton's rule, which is a good rule, gee, wouldn't it be you, you can't rebuild, especially a planet, a fragile planet and all of its ecosystems. If you were really if that's what really was motivating you, a desire for conservation and the democracy of the dead and these kinds of things. And, and then the inheritance of pristine forests and, and beautiful landscape they left us. Wouldn't you find more env environmental conservation on the right? The fact that you don't disproves the point that what we call conservative is motivated by a disposition to conserve and seems to reinforce the point. What I'm saying is that what we call conservative is simply a tribe that stands for a random basket mm. of positions. So, yeah. So to get to your point, conserve, progress. The reality is that against the stories we tell ourselves, progressives say, we like to change things. We're about progress and conservatives tell themselves, no, we want to conserve things. That's not true. Every single person on this planet, you, me, Rush Limbaugh, Donald Trump, everybody on this planet, wants to conserve things that are good and change things that are bad. We are all progressive. We are all conservative. But they just don't agree. <laughs> but they just don't agree what's good what's good and what's not good, right? That's actually that, the point. That's right? Exactly right. And so these terms yeah. are complete misnomers. And and plenty of laboratory studies have shown this that that a single disposition to conserve does not predict what positions are called conservative today. Simply both sides want to conserve things they like and change things they don't like. It really is that simple. There's just a tribe. Maybe we can go into some more examples because maybe for for the listeners it might be just instructive to to give some more examples. You already brought the example of the Iraq War, which is quite interesting. And also, for instance, I just yesterday saw there's there's a very famous picture of Theodore Roosevelt, and Theodore Roosevelt was in, if memory serves, a Republican. There's this famous picture of uh, Teddy Roosevelt from about 1906, where he's standing with John John Muir. Muir, I don't know how how you pronounce it correctly. John Muir, as most people pronounce so, it here, yeah, yeah. And he, so he's standing with John Muir on the Yosemite National Park, and the, the Republicans at that time were the first, to my to my knowledge, who started with the National Park movement, right? So clearly, as you said, I mean, it also seems like quite logical when you're conservative, then you want to conserve nature, no? So, and this position seems to have changed several times over the over the, over the the last hundred years, no? Yeah, although even though Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican, he considered himself and called himself a progressive, right? Did he? Um, Did he? Yeah, and in fact, he ran in 1912 on, on a third-party ticket because he didn't get the Republican nomination. And so he ran on a party that sometimes got nicknamed Bull Moose, but it was technically the progressive party so you say well aren't those progressive positions but again what is considered progressive as you pointed out changes from day to day so teddy roosevelt had a bundle of political positions some of them would be considered right wing some of them would be considered left wing today right it, it was a, his own distinct bundle and placing him on a spectrum doesn't do us any good for instance teddy roosevelt was intensely intensely traditional when it came to morality He walked out of a room when somebody said a dirty joke, right? You know, to say that if he was alive today, he'd just be on the political spectrum, agreeing with everything that is considered left-wing today. It is nuts. He would be crusading against pornography as he did during his time. He would have been very much against gay marriage, right? He was very traditional on marital matters. He was a he was pretty staunchly Christian. He had a, a unique Christianity, but he taught Sunday school. So these things that are considered progressive social issues... He would not be on board with those. Now, economically, did he believe in more regulation of the economy? 
Yes, but again, it's multidimensional. He believed in, for instance, anti-monopoly, right? He did a lot of trust busting and breaking up monopolies. He believed in a graduated income tax, but he didn't believe in a welfare state. He was opposed to that. He thought it sapped moral fiber and things like this. So to simply say, oh, he was a progressive and therefore today he, you know, he, he was on the left and people, it's simply anachronistic. As you pointed out, what's considered left and right is constantly changing. And Teddy Roosevelt's bundle of positions was his own. And to try to put his multidimensional set of positions on a unidimensional spectrum does injustice to his views and it does injustice to views of people today. We have to consider views individually. We can't place them on a spectrum because the whole point of our book is, and I'm sorry we didn't say this more clearly, our thesis is nothing more than that there's more than one issue in politics. And if there's more than one issue, we can't model it using a spectrum. We have to use many different spectra. There's the more and less abortion spectrum. That's one. Mm. There's the higher and lower taxes spectrum. That's another, right? There's a more or less COVID restriction spectrum. That's another. There's the more or less gun control spectrum. There's the more or less intervention in Ukraine spectrum. There's so many spectra. And we need to look at these issues individually rather than assuming that all these issues go together because when in fact they don't. And if they did, we wouldn't see them constantly changing, as you've noticed and as as many smart observers have noticed. Well, what he just said now resonates a lot with me, but it's also you realize when you are a person who has sort of, how should I say, more gray, not black and white, more gray opinions on these matters, it is not always received well, right? Because I think you can you can pretty much identify, I mean, in the US, it's probably even stronger than in Europe. Like if someone is wearing a mask and was vaccinated, you can pretty much, I don't know, be quite certain what the other opinions are. They fall pretty much right. in line, right? But this, this actually makes no sense. I mean, you could have the opinion in COVID that, I don't know, this and that is right. And you could be in abortion or in, I don't know, in, in, in geopolitics, you could have a different opinion, right? But it seems, right. and I would think this is so important in our time of complexity, no? But this is like very weird that we bundle things that really have, what does the Ukraine war have, has to do with COVID? I mean, tell me that. Right. Yeah, nothing. And and so you get to the heart of why the myth of left and right has taken off and why it persists. Because if I'm going to give as much charity as I can to the people who believe in a political spectrum and believe in political monism and believe there's just one issue, the justifiable reason that they could come to that position is they see these correlations you're talking about, Alexander. They say, look, if I see somebody wearing a mask outdoors, I pretty much know that they were against the Iraq war. They're in favor of higher taxes on the race. They're in favor of abortion rights. How is it that I can predict all that? So the default explanation is, There must be some underlying philosophy. There must be some disposition leading to all these many distinct positions because they're not really distinct. They seem distinct. It seems that abortion rights and gun control are two different things and that you could believe in less abortion and less gun rights, right? You you would think. But if they're correlating, it must be that they're not distinct. It must be that something deep down connects them. So the myth of left and right emerges because people are trying to explain a correlation that you and I can see. So mm. what causes what causes it? They say the causative variable is an underlying disposition towards change. If you're in favor of change, you have this bundle of positions. If you're against change, you have that bundle. It's the disposition to change that is the causative variable causing this bundling. Our book says, actually, it's not. It's not an underlying disposition. Those are the stories we tell ourselves. Those are fairy tales. What is causing the bundling is tribal conformity. 
Why is it that the person that wears the mask is also anti-abortion because they belong or excuse me, pro-abortion rights because they belong to a tribe and the tribe is telling them these things go together. And so to conform to their tribe and to get along to other people who are part of their social spaces, they adopt the views of their tribe as a whole. So the correlation is much better explained by social conformity than it is by underlying disposition because there's no evidence we're aware of that underlying dispositions leads to these distinct policies. But there's tons of evidence that social conformity does lead people to hold a bundle of positions. But my feeling is that this really poisons the well in a way, right? I mean, think, for instance, about Donald Trump, okay? I think you can very well make the argument that he's, I don't know, an unpleasant person or you don't, I don't know, you don't like how he talks. But okay, fine. But Donald Trump was a president, as far as I remember, who stopped it. how do you call it, TTIP, TTIP, so this international uh, agreement. This was one of the at least in Europe, one of the major left-wing things all the time. People say, we do not want it. We don't. And then Donald Trump gets into office and stops it, right? Whereas mm. the other Democratic presidents before pushed it. So mm. he also didn't start a new war, right? So I don't understand. Why can he not say, okay, I do not like him because this, this, his unpleasant is that. But on the other side, he did this and that. And this was, you know, okay, so we are not, we are not able to seemingly not able to make a judgment that goes beyond a blank how do you say a blank statement or how do you say it? like a like a blanket statement yeah. yeah 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 exactly exactly no you're exactly right it poisons the well in so many ways see that's probably the biggest pushback we get against our theory they say well okay you make good points these aren't consistent terms they change over time but it's useful the left right model is useful we say hogwash i, I i'm not aware of any evidence at all that the left-right model is useful, that it somehow makes people more thoughtful, better able to navigate politics, helps them to be more um, understanding or charitable. All the evidence I'm aware of shows the exact opposite. Like you say, the correct and charitable thing to do would be to say, okay, let's look at Donald Trump. He is a mixed bag. There's a whole bunch of policies, and he's going to have some policies I agree with and some policies I don't. That's going to be true of us. But instead, we say, no, 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 there's just one issue, and Donald Trump is on the far right of that one issue. But as you point out, wait a minute. I thought the Iraq war was a far right issue. George W. Bush was was constantly called far right wing fascist. You know, all the people I went to grad school with were every day fascist. George W. Bush, fascist, fascist. I say, what's he doing that's so fascist? You, you say he's extreme right wing? I thought Ronald Reagan was extreme right wing because he cut government spending. But George W. Bush has radically expanded size of government. So doesn't that make George W. Bush left wing? And they say, no, 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 because it's not about size of government. It's about militarism. Militarism is the one crucial, essential issue. And since George W. Bush is a militarist who invaded Iraq, that makes him extreme right wing. Therefore, he's like Hitler. Well, along comes Donald Trump and repudiates the war in Iraq. He says it was a mistake that America needs to stop invading foreign countries. So did that mean that Donald Trump is now on the left? No, they say, oh, Donald Trump is even further to the right. These people are talking nonsense. When you're thinking of politics in terms of a unidimensional spectrum, it totally leads you wrong. The reality isn't that Donald Trump can be placed on a spectrum because he can't. There's more than one issue. The reality is that Donald Trump has a whole basket of goods and he believes in a bunch of different things and we should be evaluating those things one by one. Now, in my opinion, is the basket of Donald Trump worse than the basket of Joe Biden? Yes. And that's why I supported Biden in the last election. I liked his basket less. But that doesn't mean Biden was right about everything and Trump was you know, wrong about everything. Whereas the political spectrum says, no, 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 since there's one issue, you're either right on the one issue and you're on the left. 
and you're or you're wrong on the one issue and you're on the right. And since Trump is, quote, on the right, on the far right somehow, then he is a fascist and wrong about everything. And we don't have to engage. We don't have to think about what he promotes. We just have to oppose. And so this kind of conformism, yes, poisons the well in so many ways. On the other side of things, no one does how many people supported Trump that wouldn't have had they been using their brains, right? During the 90s, you have Bill Clinton, this adulterer. And all of my Republican friends said, we conservatives believe in traditional values. Mm. And we believe that an adulterer is not fit to be president. And you know what? I agreed with them. I said, that's true. If somebody's not faithful in their marriage vows, then how can we trust them to be faithful to the country? It was a persuasive argument. But as soon as Trump got the nomination, those exact same people said character does not matter. And it's not just anecdotal, right? I mean, you can look at the polls. The percentage of liberals who said they thought character mattered was very low until Trump got the nomination and then it shot up. And the percentage of conservatives who thought character mattered a great deal was very high until Trump got the nomination and went low. So they totally abandoned their principles. Furthermore, something as obvious as as being pro-vaccine I mean, when the right wing tribe said, no, 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 vaccines are dangerous. All these people who had believed in vaccines suddenly became anti-vax. How many people died because of tribal conformity? It really is tragic. This bad model is literally a matter of life and death. People are dying because of the myth of left and right. If people would have just looked at the evidence and said, do vaccines on net save lives, they would have gotten vaccinated. Instead, they said, no, I'm right wing, right wing principled. I'm a principled right winger. I can't betray my principles, so I have to be anti-vax. They didn't take the vaccine and they died accordingly. This is unbelievably tragic. So this model, there is no evidence that is useful and there is tons of evidence that is extremely harmful. And and we can go further into that because the evidence just piles up every day. That is another dimension that I find very disturbing. Now we could say, okay, this is a phenomenon of, I don't know, like, let's say, populist media or just populist political figures and whatnot. But like on the on the universities, we have like this distinguished and this proper conversation. But wherever I look at universities, I'm honestly shocked on what level the discussion goes on there. And like when you see the recent, I'm telling you my opinion, maybe you, you, you see it differently, but like... After we had this Hamas attack in, in, in Israel, I saw like a wave of, in my opinion, anti-Semitic and neo-racist slurs and, and, and movements that came especially from universities partly. And I did not expect, I mean, I'm 50 years old and I, I, I have not experienced this type of, I mean, think of like, I mean, I don't want to repeat it, but like things were said and not only on the street, but also in universities, this is far, far away from a, reasonable, you know, discussion. So we're not even doing it at universities. This is what really troubles me. Or or do you see it differently? No, completely right. And and so here's the thing is the myth of left and right is more pronounced among elites than it is among common people. That's what's really interesting is universities are more likely to believe the myth of left and right. <laughs> so you, you approach a normal person on the street, you say, what do you think about abortion? They say, yeah, we should probably have some restrictions on abortion. You know, what do you think about the welfare state? Yeah, probably should extend the welfare state. They're not being, cons- quote, consistent. They don't have uniformly left or right-wing opinions. They're all over the place. You go to a university, on the other hand, and there's a great deal of conformity. You can predict a university professor's opinions way better than you can somebody in the street because they buy into this myth. Why is that? Because our education system sells this myth. I don't know how it is in Austria, but I'm telling you, when I was in the fifth grade, our teacher went up to the board and said, here's the way to conceive of politics. You have a line. 
the Republicans are on the center right. Hitler was on the far right. The Democrats are on the center left. Stalin was on the far left. And all through the next, you know, 17 years of my schooling, that model got reinforced, reinforced, reinforced. So elites are much more likely to believe this than common people. It's a lie. Now, the elites themselves would say, well, it's because we're smarter. We we understand the truth. We we cut through and see the reality of the left wing, right wing. Simply not true. No evidence for that. Once again, they never provide evidence for it. It's simply that there's been more indoctrination into it. So a metaphor we use is in the 17th century, Western doctors believed in this four humors theory, right? That health comes about by balancing the different fluids in the body. And so they would try to heal their patients by cutting them open. Now, if you look at the medical history, it was the most educated doctors who were most likely to believe in the four humors theory. You even killed the president. You even killed the president by that as far as I know. I think George, George Washington no, was was he not killed by bloodletting essentially? Almost certainly, yeah. Well, he was on his deathbed. He had a fever that was pretty minor, but the the most learned physicians in the country came in and sliced him open. And Washington encouraged them to do it. Again, he was an elite. He had been indoctrinated in this. He said, "Please take more blood." A young guy who hadn't been indoctrinated was one of those doctors, and he begged them not to do it, and they kept doing it, and it probably killed him. But by the way, what you say now brings me to another, how should I say, thing that I don't understand. You said if you would go to on the street and would ask, let's say, average people, normal people, their opinions would be much more moderate, let's put it like this. And I heard, I don't know if this is correct, but I heard like half a year ago or something, you had again this big political discussion about the abortion rights and this this Roe versus Wade, which was, I think, how do you say, like rejected by the by the by the high court or, or whatever. And and in, in, in that in that context, I heard about like a poll that was allegedly made that that suggested that If you would ask Americans broadly what their opinion would be on that matter, you would sort of get like a bell curve where you have like, let's say, 10% extreme. I'm not saying right, left. I mean, like on the curve, right, right on, left. On like that single issue. On, sure. on this yeah. single issue, you would have like, say, yeah. 10% who are extreme, like pro-life and 10% who are extreme, like uh, you can make an abortion until the eight months or whatever. But you yeah. would have maybe 80, 70, 80% who would have a position that is pretty much the European position. So... Now I'm wondering why on earth is none of the political parties using that? Because I mean, if you would tap into that middle, you would, uh, wouldn't you? Would you not be much more successful than when you play for the? It's, it's, it's like on a musical festival. You only play the most extreme music that only five people like, and yes. 90% of the audience says, "What the heck? How does that sound?" I, I don't understand that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think our theory does help explain this. Because if you buy into the myth of left and right, then being more extreme means being more righteous. Okay. So if, if, if I'm saying there's one issue and the left wing stands for social justice and the right wing is against social justice, that's the only issue out there. Or, or, or if you want to phrase it as progressivism, then being extremely in favor of progress is better than being slightly in favor of progress. Right. So if you think that abortion then is a social justice issue, then the most extreme position on abortion means you are the most in favor of social justice. So this is driven by the delusion of philosophical coherence. If there is one issue in politics and you can be on the correct side of that one issue, then take that one issue as far as you can to make yourself more righteous. If center left mm. is a little righteous, then far left is far righteous. And so you're willing to yeah. take every position considered left wing to its extreme. And so so when you think about like how how voting goes, they're not trying to please voters to get a nomination in America. And you might say this is a flaw of our system. And I, I, I'd have to ask my brother about this. He's the political scientist. But the way it goes in America is you have to get nominated by your party. You're not getting nominated by the people as a whole. So you have to appeal to the partisans. 
Now, remember what we said about the elites. The elites are more indoctrinated into this myth of left and right. So if you're a Republican trying to get the nomination, the people who can nominate you believe that there is one issue and right wing is good and left wing is bad. So the more extreme you are on that right wing, the further, the more righteous and uh, valuable and uh, preferable you are and more attractive you are. So the, the nominators of the presidents are the people who believe in this myth and have an incentive then to pick a candidate with extreme views based on the myth. Now, if you demolish the myth and say there isn't just one issue, there's a whole bunch, then we have to evaluate issues one by one, and it's more complicated. It's not as easy, but it brings you closer to the reality. But they're stuck in this. Another point you make, which is a point of misunderstanding that people make. So we oftentimes in our political discourse confuse the terms moderate from dissent. So you use the term moderate correctly. You said, hey, when we are talking about abortion, you can't put that on a scale, right? Extreme pro-life, extreme pro-choice, right? You can put that on a scale. But then we're talking about thousands of issues. You can't put them all on one scale. And yet people talk about moderate as if you can. Oh, he's in the middle. But what do you do with somebody who is extremely in favor of abortion rights and extremely in favor of tax cuts? Well, you would call them a moderate because they have one extreme issue on the left and one extreme issue on the right. <laughs> but But that doesn't communicate what they are. So we need to reserve the term moderate for individual issues as you did. You can say you're moderate on abortion or you're moderate on taxes, but you can't talk about somebody being on the moderate of an imaginary political spectrum. In that case, you need to say dissenting, right? He, You say he's not left or right. It's not because he's in the middle. It's just that he doesn't conform to the tribe. And it's that kind of dissent we want. We're not necessarily encouraging moderation because heaven knows there's certain extreme positions that are correct. For instance, in 2003, I took an extreme position. Most of the country was in favor of invading Iraq. I was an extremist. I was an outlier. And I said, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think this is just war. That made me an extremist. I think history and time has borne out that my extremist position was correct. So it's not that extreme positions are, are incorrect. It's simply that being dissenting is what we're trying to encourage and not conforming to everything a tribe believes because there's no way that everything that one of our tribes believes is correct. That's simply statistically impossible. And people only believe that that is possible when they buy into the delusion that everything each tribe believes is philosophically connected, which it's clearly not. By the way, you mentioned social justice before. I think you, you mentioned in the book and I found this so convincing. Maybe you can, you made the argument, if I remember correctly, that under the argument of social justice, you can argue often for both sides of the topic. Like, can, can you make this example? Because I found this so convincing as, a, as, a, as, a, as an example. I think you mentioned it was the Iraq war or, or intervention or something like that. You know, when people say there's one issue and you say, well, what is that one issue? Everybody's going to have a different idea, right? And it's always going to be self-serving, as you pointed out. If you consider yourself a progressive, you say, oh, the one issue is, do you want to progress and have social justice or do you try to stand against social justice and preserve privilege? It's privilege versus progress. That's the one issue. Of course, if you talk to Ben Sass, who's a Republican senator or used to be, he'll say, no, no, no. The one issue is realism versus utopianism. And, and people who are conservatives are realists who confront reality as it is, whereas liberals are utopians who don't confront reality, right? That's his self-serving narrative. So all of these narratives are self-serving. But the most common one, the one that, that people try to be most objective with the one that you hear most often from people who are trying to like stay out of the of the fray who nonetheless believe in the myth of left and right is change they say the left is in favor of change the right wants to slow down change and that's a little more neutral because they say hey not all change is necessarily good and so there's a place for conserving and conservatism right so it seems a little more neutral but what we pointed out in the book and the story you're pointing out is that you can concoct an expo story to make all the positions considered left-wing change positions 
but you can do the exact same thing with all the right-wing positions, right? You can say, look, social justice for unborn babies. Doesn't being opposed to abortion promote social justice? Wouldn't you, you could make an argument, which, which free market economists have done, by the way, which to me are pretty convincing that free markets help grow the economy and give opportunities to minorities, women, lower class people and help elevate the station of the poorest. And since the, the poorest people do the best in free market economies, shouldn't we then promote free market economies and don't free markets then advance the cause of social justice? Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I'm not necessarily wading in here on that. I'm just saying you can make that case. You could make the case the Iraq war, right? Hey, how dare you not care about the rights of the unfortunate Iraqis? If you believe in social justice, you should intervene in, in invading Iraq and bringing freedom to those, those poor oppressed people. If you are against oppression and believe in social justice, you'll support the Iraq war. Now, the opponents of the Iraq war, like myself, said, but wait a minute. It just doesn't work. It's not that I'm against Iraqi freedom. I just don't think you can create Iraqi freedom by invading. Okay, and that was considered a left-wing position. But notice that same rhetoric is used to oppose the welfare state. People who say, well, it's nice that you want to take people's money and redistribute it and, and solve poverty and, and advance social justice, but it just doesn't work, right? And so <laughs> the arguments that are used by the left against the Iraq war are used by the right against the welfare state. So it, it's it's really inconsistent. And the point you're making that we were making is that you can attach the exact same story to the opposite set of policies. And since the evidence people use for the, there's only one issue in politics, change versus preservation, the evidence they have is stories. Well, those aren't really evidence because you can attach opposite policies to the same story. This brings me to, to another topic that I'm thinking for a long time. And it connects with something I read just recently in, I don't know if you know Jörn Norberg and his book Open. It's quite good. And so I'm, I'm thinking a lot over the last years about complex system and wicked problems and, and the fact that it's once you're in a complex system, you, you cannot predict the future. You can just experiment and you can test if what you're doing is working is not working. But the idea that you can plan and predict what's going to happen in five years is just ridiculous when you, at least this is my position in a complex system. And now what I read yesterday in, in, in Norberg's good book was from Virginia Postrel and she said, Sort of, and this this idea I haven't I don't know didn't make the connection myself before. She makes the point that the conservatives and the progressives actually make the same mistake, but in a different direction. So that the conservative says, "Oh, I want the future exactly like the past was." So I I know how the future will be exactly like the past, and the progressive says, "No, I know how I want the future, but exactly like my vision of the future is going to be, because I exactly know how it's going to work out, and I know we go into Iraq and we we will make democracy there." And so, but both it's the same fallacy, but just the one with the look back and the other one with the look forward. I, I found this a very I don't know fascinating idea. Does this resonate with you in some way? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Because, you know, that's that's the entire political spectrum, at least that conceptualization of it is predicated on the mistake that we know the future. Right. People who call themselves progressive say, one, history has a direction Two, I know what that direction is, is. And three, that direction is good. Those are three unjustified assumptions. <laughs> and then the conservatives, like you point out, make the equally silly assumption. One, history has a direction Two, I know what that direction is. But then the difference is they say, and that direction is bad. They're both making the same mistake. And, and this isn't just like, you know, philosophical. I mean, Karl Popper wrote a wonderful book called The Poverty of Historicism, which, which debunked yes. this a while ago philosophically. But Dan Gardner has done a great job debunking this empirically. He, he just says, look, 
If we can know the future, how come nobody knows it? And how come every time somebody says they know it, they actually don't? He goes back and looks at the smartest people, you know, not marginal cranks, the smartest people, the professors of the Ivy League universities, the, 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 those people with tons of social influence, and, and looks at the predictions they made, and, and their track record of prediction is just atrocious. It's, it's even worse than monkeys throwing, you know, darts. Yeah, Phil Tedlock made this also. Phil Tedlock observed yes. this over 10 years, right? And, and, and figured out that the expert predictions are pretty, pretty worthless in, in, in fact. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so Gardner, Tetlock made this point in an academic setting, right? Using very okay. intense academical. And then Gardner did it in kind of a more pop way. And he drew Dan on Gardner. Tetlock. Dan Gardner. Dan Gardner's his name. Yeah. Okay. And so he drew on Tetlock, but then added a whole bunch of kind of popular examples uh, of it rather than rigorous. He used a little more like anecdotal kind of illustrative evidence. And then Gardner and Tetlock teamed up to write the book Super Forecasting, which ah, I thought okay, was really yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Because they yeah. said, hey, both of us agree that experts aren't good at predicting, but are there people that are good at predicting? And so you say, oh, we can't know the future. No, we can't, because these super forecasters, what they found about them was that one of the core characteristics of these super forecasters is that they did not believe in the myth of left and right. They didn't identify as either progressive or conservative. They didn't think in terms of history has a direction and you're on the wrong side of history and stuff. They just took a very kind of granular, multidimensional approach to reality, which is exactly what we're calling for. So ironically, to be a true progressive, you can't be a progressive. <laughs> to, to, to know the future and predict it a little better, at least with some degree of probabilistic success, you have to discard the paradigm in which you think you know the future. That's one of the great paradoxes and ironies. By the way, I have to say, um, I personally disagree a little bit here. I, I read the book Super Forecasters too, and I very much like the first part where exactly these predictions are analyzed. My gut feeling is, but maybe I'm wrong, maybe you can correct me here. My gut feeling is that this idea with the super forecasters is more like Do you know Nassim Taleb's example with the with the uh, Russian roulette thing? Nassim Taleb makes the example: if you have ten thousand people who play Russian roulette every every week, then of course by one sixth or something, a person dies, right? When when you play Russian roulette, right? But when ten thousand people, uh, we could do the math now. When ten thousand people play it, simply by statistical simply by statistical means, after a year or two years or whatever, one person will still survive right or a handful of persons will survive yeah. and now what our media would say wow these three people figured out how to play russian roulette <laughs> right so yeah, this is no, a post-talk rationalization this is a bit my feeling that i have with the super forecasters do, do you maybe you see it differently though well I, yeah so so the hindsight bias you're talking about right is you look at what happened and so if you look at enough example right it Coin flips, they're going to come up 50-50, but you can find somebody somewhere who flipped heads 10 times in a row and you're like, oh my gosh, they've figured it out. You know, obviously they haven't, it's just lucky, right? So, but I think Tetlock did, in fact, you know, he tracked predictions over time and attached, you know, it wasn't post hoc, it was pre and it was longitudinal. And so he was tracking over time and he did find some people could predict with slightly more accuracy. But again, it's very slight and it was really probabilistic, right? Whereas what does our media reward? Our media does not reward granular, careful probabilistic analysis they reward people who come forward and say gas prices are going to shoot up next year or mitt romney is going to win in a landslide <laughs> we want these kind of certainty we want predictions that allow for no nuance that's what that's what tickles the pleasure centers of our brain mm. and, and because of that we 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 are listening to the wrong voices is tetlock and gardner's point so yeah forecasting is very hard some people can do it very slightly better than others but it is very slight but those aren't the people we're listening to Maybe just to slowly come come to an end, I, I read this book of Tim Urban, What's Our Problem? I don't know if you know it. It's it's quite interesting. And 
he's I have to say he uses the political spectrum with left or right, at least to a certain extent. So he makes something that he calls the ladder, like uh, so he calls it high rung and low rung thinking. So he he thinks so if I interpret him correctly, he he would say there are actually left and right is not the issue, that the issue is high rung or low rung thinking. So are you like tribal? This would be low rung thinking, and I mean this tribe and that tribe, and high rung thinking would be okay, I'm more on that position, more on that position, and figure it out. And also the second aspect that he discusses is like, and this is also my gut feeling, that the much more important factor is are you authoritarian? Are you not? I don't know what the opposite of authoritarian is, but are you authoritarian or not? And you can be actually on the left authoritarian, or you can be on the right authoritarian, right? And for me, this is a much more important dimension than left and right. Does does this make sense to you? Or is it what Tim Urban says? Yeah, I, as you seem to suggest, I think he'd be better off just discarding the framework altogether, or at least recognizing that we talk about left and right. We're not talking about philosophies. We're talking about tribes. And are there people in the left-wing tribe who are authoritarian? Sure. Are there people in the left-wing tribe who oppose authoritarian? Sure. Right. Are there authoritarians in the right-wing tribe? Yeah. In my opinion, Donald Trump is one of them. That's why I don't like the guy very much. Are there people in the right-wing tribe who are less authoritarian? Sure. Right. And so if we want to recognize that they're tribes and that there's bad tendencies and good tendencies in both tribes, that's exactly the kind of granularity I'm hoping for. So if Urban recognizes that, he has my applause. I would just, you know, if you're going to use the terms left and right, at the very least, append the term tribe ahead of it so that we don't get the delusion that we're, there's just one issue in politics, right? That we're not conjuring up the, the myth of left and right, which is that these are coherent philosophically, which they're not. If you say there's a left tribe and a right tribe, yeah, of course there is. Everybody knows that. There's Democrats and Republicans. Sure, two tribes. Uh, and, and the tribes have many competing impulses within them, including authoritarianism. That's a useful way to look at things. So what we're saying is some people think you guys don't believe in spectra. Actually, no, spectra can be very useful when we're dealing with one dimension. Temperature is one dimension. Hot, cold, a thermometer has one dimension. It says really hot and really cold. We're all for using thermometers. As you mentioned, abortion, that's a dimension, right? If you want to talk about more or less abortion and use a spectrum to describe that, sure. But a unidimensional spectrum is not adequate to describe a multidimensional reality. And so our point is that politics is multidimensional. And so we would be wise to give up a unidimensional model to try to describe that multidimensionality. For the same reason and in the same ways, we would be asking doctors to give up a unidimensional spectrum. I mean, if we went into a doctor and they said, look, cancer and and uh, bacterial infections and bruises are left-wing illnesses, and, and then, you know, fractures and, and, and brain tumors and cysts are right-wing illnesses, you would just be, that's silly. Just talk about the cysts and the treatment for the cysts instead of saying, oh my gosh, he has a left-wing illness. Let's treat him with antibiotics. Well, what if he has cancer? Why are we treating cancer with antibiotics? And why would we be tre treating an infection with chemotherapy, right? It's going to get the treatments wrong because there's more than just one illness. There's just more than one dimension. And yet we have that same level of silliness in politics when we're pretending that there's just one issue in politics. When there's not, there's many. And we have to consider them like doctors do one by one. Is that harder? Yes. Is it necessary? Also, yes. Would it be easier for doctors to just prescribe people either a left-wing or a right-wing illness? It sure would be easier. It'd be easier <laughs> for them. They have they would have a lot of incentives to do it. Don't have to think. Don't have to do anything. Just come in. Oh, left-wing. There you go. You know? It'd be easy. <laughs> but it wouldn't make the world better. And that's our point about politics. And people who say the political spectrum is useful, what they're saying is it allows me to be lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Same way that it allow, would allow doctors to be lazy. And so instead of laziness, we want accuracy. And so, yes, is it going to take more work to talk about abortion as its own issue? Income tax rates is its own issue. Aid to Ukraine is its own issue. 
Palestinian-Israeli conflict as its own issue. Yes, we are. And yet how many people jumped on the anti-Semitic bandwagon that you were talking about at universities just because that was considered left-wing? And isn't it also ironic that if anything in the world was considered right-wing in the 1940s, it was being, a, it was being anti-Semitic. I mean, exactly. that was what made Hitler Hitler. And yet exactly. now anti-Semitism is considered left-wing. If this doesn't prove that left and right are meaningless terms, I don't know what does. You cannot cling to the myth of left and right in our current context. It makes no sense, and it simply has no evidence that will back it up. This brings me to my last question, and that would the question would be, are you optimistic or rather pessimistic, or what makes you optimistic about our political discussion in the future? And I would like to add sort of one thought from myself. I discussed this recently with a friend. When When you looked back, let's say you look back 10, 15 years ago, you always heard a new journalist and so on. Journalists typically told you, well, you cannot make like a statement in radio for longer than one and a half or two, two minutes because people are too stupid because after two minutes, no one listens anymore. So we have to, so people are so dumb. We have to sh shut down everything to like, you know, they're like these bite-sized stuff. And suddenly Joe Rogan comes on and makes a podcast about three hours and is the only one who talks with Bernie Sanders for an hour and talks with, I don't know, whoever. And then we have Coleman Hughes and Lex Free, I don't know, whoever from all sorts of the political spectrum. And suddenly people... But they're not on the political spectrum, right? I mean, Coleman Hughes, I've talked to him, I know him. He's, exactly. You can't fit him on left and right, yeah. No, but I mean, you find podcasters who are, I don't know, maybe Adam Carolla might be a little bit more... Anyway, that, 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 that's not my, my point necessarily. My point is just that suddenly people are listening to one, two, three hours to political or, 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 or scientific topics and not five people. But I mean, Joe Rogan has more, more listeners than NBC and ABC and whatnot altogether, right? So this would be something that would make me rather positive, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So my question would rather be, Do you see it go in general in a better direction or are you rather optimistic and what makes you optimistic or what or are, are the other way around maybe? Yeah, well, you're, you're requiring me to do what we just said is, is mostly impossible, which is forecast the future, right? But, you know, again, you can make probabilistic forecasts. And, and, and if I was betting and being probabilistic, I would say things are going to get worse. I'm generally pessimistic. Now, Let me play devil's advocate. What makes me optimistic? Exactly what you said. I see some very smart voices like Coleman Hughes, like Joe Rogan, who are bucking the whole left-right thing, who are speaking in more nuanced terms, who are not tribally conforming, and they, they're they getting a lot of followers. That's encouraging to me. The second thing is, you know, people say, oh, this younger generation is so liberal. They're so left-wing. Again, it's why we shouldn't use the political spectrum because that doesn't communicate anything. When you actually talk to Gen Z, when you talk to young people, they have opinions that are all over the place. And furthermore, because of that, I found that young people are very open to my argument. Older people, not so much. I, I can't get through to my crazy uncles, right? I can't get through. I can't get through to, 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 to people who are, you know, my age, older, whatever, but I can get through to younger people. And it seems like people in their teens and twenties, when I say there's more than one issue in politics, they're like, yeah, duh. And left and right, you know, those aren't coherent terms. Therefore, we shouldn't just join one tribe. They're like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I think. I'm convinced. So. The, the youth, th that encourages me. Here's why I'm ultimately pessimistic, though, because I think there's powerful forces that have every incentive to perpetuate the myth of left and right. The first thing is, is like you say, technology. The way technology is going, it is shortening our attention spans. This is an objective fact. A lot of people have done a lot of research on this. Nicholas Carr's book you know, pointed this out, that we are becoming more and more biased as a species in the information age to quick sound bites, and we need those dopamine hits immediately. And if you look at what produces the immediate dopamine hit, 
It's the angry owning of the other side. It's a, it's, it's, it's the tribal idea that produces the dopamine hit. Furthermore, the granularity that you and I like of thinking of each issue individually requires nuance. It requires time, whereas people are not as given to taking time precisely because the way the technology is rigged, it's, it's actually changing our brains to be biased against that. So I think there's technological forces working against us. The second thing is, is that our, our powerful institutions have incentives to perpetuate the myth of left and right. Think about the Democratic Party. If the Democratic Party was to tell the truth, which is that their party stands for a bunch of things, some of them good, some of them bad, they're not going to raise any money. They're not going to get people out campaigning. They're not going to get people you know, knocking doors and being avid Democrats. If you got a fundraising letter that said, look, our party stands for a whole bunch of things, and I hope you agree with enough of them to donate, you're probably not going to donate. But if they say, look, our party stands for social justice and everything our party believes advances social justice, help us defeat the forces of right-wing fascism on the other side, you're more likely to donate. So the parties and our politicians have every incentive to perpetuate the myth of left and right. And these are powerful institutions. I can't take them on. But could there be a bubbling up from below that forces the parties to change? There could be. And I guess the ultimate thing that makes me at least somewhat optimistic is things have gotten worse. That's the bad news. But if they can get worse, they can get better. People say, no, this is inevitable. It has to be this way. If you have a two-party system, you're going to have people believing the myth of left and right. That's not true because we've had a two-party system for the entirety of American history. But the myth of left and right is exactly one century old now. And so since we didn't have the myth of left and right before the 1920s, then there's no reason we have to have it in the 2020s. Furthermore, if you look in the 1950s, the myth of left and right was around, but it wasn't that prominent. You didn't see media figures talking in terms of left, right very much. You didn't hear politicians talking in terms of left, right very much. Dwight Eisenhower, to my knowledge, never used that framing. He would simply say, here's what I believe, here's what I don't believe. And the American people said, yeah, I generally agree with Eisenhower more than Stevenson. They were much more rational back then. So since we were more rational about politics in the 1950s, there's chance that we could be more rational about politics in the 2050s. I'm sorry, you opened up one I would like to add one question here because this is not very interesting. The Let me give you the example of COVID. I think many people are very, very angry about what happened over the two, three years. And I observed speech patterns or the argument patterns of if you took someone like Anthony Fauci, like so with the statements, I'm science, and if you're against me, you're against science. And so, so. With, and, and I think the idea back there wasn't, and I, and I discuss with people who tell me, you know, when you're in a crisis, you have to make clear communication, you have to say this and that, and that you cannot be ambiguous and so on and so forth. But this, in my opinion, bigly backfires because now people say, what the heck did you tell us about half of the stuff that you told us wasn't right? And then listen to, I think his name is Anders Tegnell. I don't know if you heard of him. He was the head virologist of Sweden. It's very interesting. And when you saw how he, argued in April, March 2020, because Sweden made something good in the beginning and something bad. And then there's like an interview where he was in, in Swedish television where he says, yeah, you know, we did this and that. And I don't know exactly what it was. We did this and that and that. And this worked well. And here we made a mistake. We didn't protect these and these people well enough. And here we made a mistake. But we wow. checked this and we learned that. And now we're checking this and that. And What is the outcome? Sweden had one of the best outcomes of COVID. Right. And I think that he has a lot of sympathy and people trust him. So I'm telling you my hypothesis, and I'm telling you my hypothesis is not shared with many people, but my hypothesis is that a politician who would say, listen, we try this because we don't know better. We do, you know, who would have this, who would own the ambiguity, if you will. My guess is after COVID, such a person could be very successful, but maybe I'm wrong. 
what is your opinion here? Well, okay, you're pushing me towards more optimism, which which is good, right? Because <laughs> you're right when you look. Yeah, so so currently we have this kind of more Fauciite absolutist admit no error because if you admit error that costs you credibility and my pride's on the line and these kinds of things and it seems currently our politicians are falling into the same kind of error of being absolutely certain about everything admitting no ambiguity because that would be surrendering or you know things like that and the more humble approach even though it's objectively better is not as attractive in kind of a soundbite sense okay so then you look at the pandemic Did we have the absolutist? Yes, we had one group of people saying that this was the Black Death and another group of people saying that it's nothing more than the common cold. Both of those were wrong. And yet here we are, what, two, three years later, and it turns out it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, Alexander, but it seems like that's kind of the consensus now among the American people and even among American politicians that, yeah, this was a bad disease, but not the 1918 exactly. influenza. And so, and, and same thing with the Iraq war, right? Like, I'm like, am I nuts? How come everybody's going along with this in 2003? And for three years, I sat there and watched what I thought was my country go crazy with this kind of war fervor. But then around 2008, 2009, it seemed like the correct position people came to it. So Maybe there's a source of optimism that in the long run, democracy isn't the best form of government because it works right away. The populace can be easily duped in the short term. But given some time, maybe a few years, maybe there is a certain gravitas to democracy where the public does seem to gravitate to more sensible answers. So there's a source of optimism, too, is that you and I both live in democracies and, and democratic systems take a while but yeah. they eventually converge on the correct answer that that could be true but that by the way brings me to to as a final note there's a german political scientist historian and he also said something that surprised me very much he said not literally but i'm paraphrasing he said one of the major benefits of modern societies is slowness mm. slowness in the sense like you are not judged in the morning then i don't know The, the 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 verdict is is over noon and in the afternoon you are killed or, or something like that. So there's like a process and a second and you can I don't know I don't know the English terms or whatever. We can go to the next and in the political system too you you need to go to the parliament. So everything is slowed down a bit, but slowed for a purpose. People always want to things to have things fast, but it seems that in the slowness there is a value in the slowness and in the mm -hmm. time it takes to to develop certain certain things. Some wisdom of Roger Scruton, right? I mean, Probably. obviously change versus preservation is not the only dimension, but is one dimension. And maybe there is value to that dimension of slowing processes down. Haram, this was an extraordinary interesting conversation. I recommend every one of the listeners to also get the book because it's really, I think, a very, very important topic and thought. And thank you so much for taking time. My pleasure, Alexander. Thank you.